criteria do we use to determine what's appropriate? Are we really worshiping God when we get together, or are we merely being entertained sometimes? The passage I want to look at this morning is found in Deuteronomy chapter 12, part of a long section containing God's instructions to Israel about their worship. The chapter begins, These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. As long as you live in the land, destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. For you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. You cannot tack God's name on it and call something worship when it's self-serving. Worship isn't a pep rally or a venue for entertainment to make us feel good. God is holy. He is different from all the other gods. And therefore, God tells Israel, be different as well in the way you worship him. And the call to destroy all the objects and the places of worship was his call to purity, to treat him differently, to not mix it up with all these other influences. You know, in our day of tolerance, God's instructions can sound especially harsh. Destroy all the places of worship, break their altars, smash their sacred stones, burn their poles, Asherah pole, cut down their idols, wipe out the names of those places. Sounds harsh. But in ancient Egypt, they worshipped as many as 2,000 separate gods and goddesses, each with their own temples, their own rituals, their own worship practices and forms. And after 430 years in Egypt, much of it as slaves, the people of Israel would have been very familiar with a wide variety of religious practices. Once they escaped and crossed the Red Sea, They came into contact with still other peoples with their own deities and forms of worship and practices who lived in that land. In verse 31 in Deuteronomy 12, it says, even some of them burned their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods, as a part of their worship, thinking that the more you gave, the greater your sacrifices, the greater claim you had on your God. And by far the most common forms of worship would have been the various forms of the fertility cults whose worship centered around a variety of sexual activity represented by their idols and their altars and their shrines. And so as Israel was preparing for life in the promised land, they knew they would have to establish their own form of worship. The issue is, what were you going to base it on? Where are you going to look for examples of what's appropriate? there would have been a very strong temptation to look around and see what everyone else was doing and to make it your own. A worship which was based on pleasure and ambition. And God said, stop, don't do it. You shall not worship the Lord your God in their way. Verses 29 through 32 elaborate on that further when it says, The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess, but when you have driven them out and settled in their land and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, How do these nations worship or serve their gods? We will do the same. 
You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates, and they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. See that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take it away, away from it. The practices of all these different peoples was built around an understanding of worship as a way to appease or manipulate their gods. Or, as in the case of the fertility religions, simply as a way to indulge their pleasures and make them feel good and give it a religious name. People offered sacrifices either as a sort of bribe to get their prayers answered or to avoid punishment. And a worship was a way to have a claim on their gods. But then is it all that different if we turn worship from an encounter into God to one to merely appease his anger, thinking that somehow going to church is all God's going to require of us and we're okay then? Or those who might think that going to to worship will somehow make our prayers more acceptable to God. We come because we want something from him. And yet when Jesus comes to our life, he seeks to break down the idols, the shrines, the practices that stand in his way. What would it look like if worship is saved by the world? What would it look like if we treat it as a show or a theater? Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard sought to correct that in his famous analogy of worship as theater. He said... Most people view worship with God behind the scenes like the director, moving, giving guidance and direction as needed to the minister to inspire him so that he has his lines right to know what to say to entertain the audience, which is the congregation. So God is the director, the minister, and the worship leaders are the actors on stage And the audience is the congregation there to be entertained, to sit back, to watch a show. And if it's done right and well, they might be moved. If not, they get bored. In either case, they feel free to evaluate the performance of those up on stage. But Kierkegaard says that turns it all around. He says in Scripture, it shows just the opposite. The minister is the director, preparing and guiding the worship along, helping and directing the actors in their various functions. In reality, the actors are you, the congregation. It's you performing through song and prayer, the various activities of worship, all done for an audience of one. God is that audience looking on the one we are seeking to please. It's for his delight, not our own, Kierkegaard points out. But if we see ourselves as the audience, here to take in some show, then we turn the focus away from him and onto ourselves. And it becomes no different than what the Canaanites were doing in Palestine. And while we may not offer our children to the flames, we may be offering up souls to materialism and self-interest. Worship is holy because God is holy. He's different. And we therefore must worship him different than the world around us. And part of that means that it has to be corporate. In ancient Palestine, they had temples where people might go when they wanted something, where they might take a sacrifice. But largely, their worship was private. They didn't need to gather with others. They could build their altars and their shrines by the river or up on a hill or under a tree or in the valley or out in their field, virtually any place they wanted. 
and they pretty much decided for themselves what they wanted to do, and they did their own thing, and they called it worship. And God tells them, stop, don't do it. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Instead, he says in verse 5, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. Canaanites went to the hills, the trees, to worship. Today, you often hear people say, I don't need to go to church to worship with others. I can go to the beach or the mountains and worship God there in nature. And that's true. We should worship wherever we are. Sometimes I do it while I'm driving into work. Sometimes I might do it while I'm walking my dogs. But there also is a need to gather with others of like faith to worship. And the unfortunate thing is, usually when I hear people say, I can worship at the beach, they're not going to the beach to worship. They're going there to have fun. And they actually, if you press them, they admit that, no, they don't really worship. It's just an excuse. Those who say they don't need others to worship are deluding themselves. To say we don't need to be with others is basically the same as saying that we know better than God. Because Scripture speaks of the Christian life always within the context of a larger body. It's been pointed out many times by many people, it really is impossible to be a Christian in what one called solitary splendor. It's rooted in a larger community of faith. Corporate worship is the most fundamental of all of our practices. We don't go through life on our own, but we're part of something bigger than ourselves. In worship, we're reminded of that as we find mutual strength and support and edification, which doesn't come from doing our own thing, but being joined in a larger community focused on the object of our worship, which is God. God's command here is given when the tendency of the people would be to disperse and go their own way. And yet God says in verses 8 and 9, you are not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God has given you. So the Lord tells him, come together to the place I will show you to gather together to exalt him. And as the book of Hebrews says in that well-known verse, let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. What makes our worship worship instead of something else? What happens when the world begins to shape our understanding? We get confused. We call all kinds of things worship. And this is one of my pet peeves. Normally when I'm driving, I don't like to listen to commercials. You know, there's never just one, but there's a whole series of them. And so I have three or four stations on my car radio that I switch back and forth to whenever the commercials come on. But recently, just within the last couple weeks, I was driving into church here in the morning And before I could change the channel, a commercial caught my attention. Now, we're dealing with worship. And so when this ad started out talking about an upcoming evening of worship, I thought I'd listen. Their evening of worship 
was to come hear a popular Christian band that was going to be here on Oahu. Their evening of worship was to come, enjoy what's being presented, and that's worship. Now, it's a band that I like. I have some of their music. I've been to see them when I was on the mainland. And I don't mean to sound harsh because there's nothing wrong with enjoying good music. And at another time, under other circumstances, I might have gone and enjoyed it. But the issue I had with this was, why call it worship? It's a concert. It's a concert. Like any concert, they're selling tickets starting at $25. Does God want us to charge people to worship him? People came. They sat. They listened. Maybe some sang along, and they clapped in appreciation for what was presented. But where's the awe, the reverence that accompanies worship? In Scripture, when people worship, they took off their shoes because it's holy ground. They bowed down. They fell on their faces before the king of kings while we clap in appreciation for the musicians. As I said, I enjoy this band's music. People left feeling good. But I could go to any concert and leave feeling good. What made it worship, an evening of worship? My pet peeve is, call it what it is. It's a concert. Otherwise, we start turning everything into worship and calling anything we do worship when we're being entertained. We're enjoying what we're experiencing. But worship is for God, we've been talking about the past few weeks. The most common block to being open to God in your life is assuming an attitude of being a spectator. Well, typically, worship is often divided into four areas that I want to just briefly take a look at because we don't sometimes ask or evaluate what we do here on Sunday mornings. What makes this worship? One of the first areas is simply praise and adoration. We gather to give glory to our Lord which is truly an appropriate response when we see God in his holiness. It seeks nothing from him or for ourselves. It's simply acknowledging the greatness of God. The psalmist says how pleasant and fitting it is to praise him. We may do it in our prayers. We may do it in the message. But the primary way we do it is in music. That's why we sing. The psalmist said, sing for joy to God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. Begin the music. Strike the tambourine. Play the melodious harp and lyre. Sound the ram's horn at the new moon. And when the moon is full on the day of our feast, praise God. I was just reading the other day of a study from a few years ago that suggested that we stop thinking about the lyrics to a song after hearing it 30 times, which, as this writer pointed out, means that we need to be careful not to stop worshiping in spirit and in truth and start lip-syncing. Maybe that's why the psalmist said, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among the people. We worship by praising God, primarily in song, but there's other ways too. The style is secondary. A second area of worship is simply through prayer, communication, spending time in prayer 
talking and listening and being silent and still before God. Private prayer is good and necessary, but public prayer helps prevent our private prayers becoming, from becoming self-centered. It reminds us we're part of a larger community. It calls us to look beyond ourselves as we unite our voices. There is a power there that we do not have when we're apart, which is why Jesus said that when two of you on earth agree on anything you ask for, it will be done. Prayer is taking the time to sit before God, to talk to him, to listen to him, to be still before him, to recognize his greatness. A third area that we do is proclamation. In most worship, that mainly deals with the sermon. The, the praise and the prayer time focus our attention on God, acknowledge Him as the proclamation that begins to apply it, to direct our thoughts about what do we do with this as we worship God? How is it, can it change us? How do we respond? He gives us His witness in His Word, not only an account of the life of Christ, but God's revelation of Himself. Proclamation centers on that word and how to interpret it. But it's not the only way. Last week we celebrated, or two weeks ago, the Lord's Supper. We do baptism. These are all pro proclamation of the saving work of our Lord. We have scripture reading. It's part of proclamation. Hebrews says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the hearts. Proclamation can be done during sharing. Not just announcements, but proclaiming the wonderful deeds of God, how he has worked in our life. And a fourth area is Dedication often seen in Scripture through the sacrifices, through the offering that we bring. That's a dedication of ourselves, a commitment of ourselves to God, a response to God. Isaiah 55 talks about how the rain and snow come from heaven, and they don't return without watering the earth, making it blood and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. And God says, that's how my word is that goes from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but accomplishes that which I desire and achieves the purpose for which I sent it. How do you respond to God to dedicate yourself? Well, we have a hymn of invitation. That's a time to respond. We leave open a time each week to dedicate ourselves to the Lord, to respond in some way if he's speaking to our hearts. For one, it may be salvation. For other, it may be a rededication. Another, it may be baptism or church membership, or it may simply be in seeking prayer, the strength we find from others. The point is, we respond. We dedicate ourselves through our offerings. We declare our allegiance to God, not our bank books. Even announcements. Some raise the objection, well, those aren't part of worship, but they provide an opportunity to know how to respond. How we worship is through praise. It is through prayer. It is through proclamation. It is through dedication. Because if worship is a celebration of God, how are we to celebrate him? In a book titled Worship, Rediscovering the Missing Jewel, 
Dr. Ronald Allen runs through a typical order of service in church to show how it all can be a celebration. I want to close with that. He writes, What then is the essence of worship? It's the celebration of God. When we worship God, we celebrate Him. We extol Him. We sound His praises. We boast in Him. Worship is not the casual chatter that occasionally drowns out the prelude. We celebrate God when we allow the prelude to attune our hearts to the glory of God by the means of the music. Worship is not the mumbling of prayers or the mouthing of hymns with little thought and less heart. We celebrate God when we join together earnestly in prayer and intensely in song. Worship is not the self-aggrandizing words or boring cliches when one is asked to give a testimony. We celebrate God when all the parts of the service fit together and work to a common end. Worship is not grudging gifts or compulsory service. We celebrate God when we give him to Him hilariously and serve Him with integrity. Worship is not haphazard music done poorly, not even great music done merely as a performance. We celebrate God when we enjoy and participate in music to His glory. Worship is not a distracted endurance of the sermon. We celebrate God as we hear his word gladly and seek to be conformed by it more and more to the image of our Savior. Worship is not the hurried motions of a tacked-on Lord's table. We celebrate God preeminently when we fellowship gratefully at the ceremonial meal that speaks so centrally of our faith in Christ who died for us, who rose again on our behalf, and who is to return for our good. As a thoughtful gift is a celebration of a birthday. As a special evening out is a celebration of an anniversary. As a warm eulogy is a celebration of life. As a sexual embrace is a celebration of a marriage. So a worship service is a celebration of God. Let's pray. Father, may we learn to celebrate you. In song and praise through our prayers, through our proclamation and your word, through our dedication and response to you. May we celebrate you in worship, God. May it be about you and not ourselves, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all please stand as we sing our hymn of response and invitation? And it is an opportunity to respond in some way if God is prodding you, speaking to your heart, whether it's for salvation, whether it's for uniting with this church or baptism, we invite you to come as we sing together.